You're listening to On The Money with Dynamic Funds, the podcast series that delivers access, insights, and perspective from some of the industry's most respected active managers and thought leaders. From market commentaries and economic analysis to personal finance, investing, and beyond, On The Money covers it all. Because when it comes to your money, we're on it. Welcome to another edition of On The Money. I'm your host, Mark Brisley. My conversation today is with veteran growth manager, Noah Blackstein, who manages over $8 billion in US and global growth mandates for us here at Dynamic Funds. Pure growth managers are actually few and far between, and in particular here in Canada. And even fewer have employed the same commitment to the bottom-up growth investment process that has been the core of Noah's long-term track record for more than 24 years. I last had Noah on this podcast back in November, and while broadly speaking, markets have been positive year-to-date, the day-to-day volatility definitely continues, and market breadth is narrow. I want to share a direct quote from one of Noah's recent commentaries. While the market moves in fits and starts based on macro positioning, secular growth stocks, which have been pressured by the most aggressive rate hikes in 40 years, now exit the bear market with better prospects and potential upside than before. The headwinds for growth stocks in 2022, where for many of those companies, their quality fundamentals and earnings were ignored by the markets, has created what Noah believes is a generational opportunity over the next five years. He has consistently sought out companies over his career that have become next generation leadership that can eventually take the place of today's mega cap companies. Some examples of these would be Apple, which Noah first bought back in 2002, or Google, Alphabet, which he bought in 2004, or Meta at Facebook, which he purchased in 2013. So Noah, it's great to have you here. And you know, I remember a commentary that you wrote in late 2016, maybe early 2017, in which you discussed the opportunity ahead for true stock pickers. And while in your role, I'm sure there's always an opportunity, it's certainly not every year that you're discussing those types of opportunities or conditions, and certainly not that it's a generational opportunity for growth stocks, but this seems to be one of those times. 2022, really from November of 21, actually, where the Federal Reserve decided to suggest that within a two-week period went from inflation is transitory to becoming the next Paul Volcker 1970, early 80s Federal Reserve on inflation and interest rates. The market as a whole has been under pressure, but certainly growth stocks in particular have been under tremendous pressure. And some of the things that we saw last year were really just the highest correlation between growth stocks that we've ever seen in history. And so it was really as if the whole universe of companies that were growing began to trade as a single entity and were pushed down very hard versus the overall market last year as macro traders put on some sort of stagflation kind of trade last year. But it sent the S&P down substantially for the year for sure, but growth stocks in particular took the brunt of it. For the most part, though, when you're trading everything the same way, it doesn't allow for any differentiation amongst those growth stocks. And there are clearly babies thrown out with the bathwater. Our main focus through the course of last year and into this year was focusing on our discipline, focusing on our process, and finding those next generation leaders that we think have substantial upside over the next five years. And that's really what we do. We can't predict when the turn in the markets happens. But I would say, you know, last year around June, after sort of the liquidation of some very large growth-oriented hedge funds, inflation peaked in June at about 9%. And we continue to see lower and lower inflation numbers. We can debate whether we're in a recession or not, but what it's actually had led to more recently is wider dispersion among stocks, 
and significantly less correlation, which is all we're really asking for as uh, long-term investors, that you can really see the trees for the forest. And that's begun to happen now, which is exciting. There seems to be a pervasive thought out there by a lot of investors that when that happens, an extended interest rate hiking cycle, that the returns, in particular those in the S&P 500, are going to be challenged or negative during that period of time. But historically, that hasn't been the case. No, it hasn't actually. In fact, on average, stocks are up during the period of time that the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, I believe on average by about uh, 9% during the tightening cycle. Because typically what's happening is the economy is growing fairly rapidly. And the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates alongside the economic growth. And um, you know, you've had years where 87 to 89, 58 to 59, even in the periods where Paul Volcker was raising interest rates from 80 to 81 and 83 to 84, those saw gains in the market from the beginning of the hiking cycle to the end of roughly around 9%. The market last year was down close to 20% or even more from peak to trough. And that was actually the worst performance on record for equities during a Fed hiking cycle. It eclipsed even 1973. And 73, there's a whole bunch of other things going on, including the oil embargo, the end of the Vietnam War, but more importantly, the end of the Bretton Woods system, uh, monetary system. And this was actually worse than that. The reason why that was, was because of how fast the Federal Reserve raised interest rates. We went from zero in March of 2022 to now today, we're at between five and 525, whatever you want to call that, on Fed funds. And so it was very rapid. And equities really took the brunt of that hit. And so the question becomes, obviously, where are we now and where are things going? But for a whole host of reasons, 2022 was a very, very unique year, informed, I think, by the previous years where there was so much stimulus going on because of the pandemic, that we're in such a very strange period of time, there's almost no analogies. The only analogy you can probably come up with is the post-World War II period, after all the stimulus in the war, and then the slowdown post that, and what was going on there. But it's very difficult to find any analogies to what we just went through, given how much stimulus was thrown at the economy during the pandemic, and then how fast the Federal Reserve pivoted toward rate hikes. It was a very unique period of time. You've argued for years and have always said, been very consistent, one of your biggest concerns is policy error by the Fed, by the U.S. Policy Reserve. When you look back now, are we at a position where you can say they made mistakes? Clearly, they made mistakes. They made mistakes by underwriting that 2021 stimulus and not raising rates earlier in 2021, clearly. You know, it was six days after the reappointment of Powell that they decided to become serious about inflation. I mean, you can look at the regional bank situation today. Uh, in terms of assets, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank, the failure of Signature Bank in New York, the failure of First Republic Bank, these are some massive institutions that equity and bonds were wiped out because of the Federal Reserve's actions of jacking short-term rates while long rates have completely collapsed and inverting the yield curve. While you could say that was the fault of the banks, not every bank has a trading desk and a derivative desk to lay off risk for sure, but the Federal Reserve is also responsible for regulating those entities as well. So before they undertook this policy of raising rates. So we've had that instance. And that's why I think that this Federal Reserve pause, where we're actually having a contraction a little bit in credit conditions now, because of what's gone on in the regional banks, the Federal Reserve has stopped. And inflation from the last two numbers is clearly coming down. So I think the error was obviously, you wiped out three enormous regional banks. I mean, most people would consider that to be a bit of a mistake. The funny thing about economics is it's arithmetic, right? Inflation's this, we'll raise interest rates by this. Inflation's that, we'll raise by this. It's a little bit more of arithmetic. Credit is exponential. Credit is something very different. And so the longer-term ramifications of what's happened in terms of credit conditions, we'll have to find out. But on the bright side, 
we've had many anecdotal pieces of evidence that those deposits have merely gone to the larger banks. It wasn't like, oh, wait, your money good on your deposits. You've sort of said these number of banks are too big to fail and these deposits are money good. So money's gone over to, I mean, JP Morgan was a huge beneficiary. The big banks have been big beneficiaries. So it's not like mortgages being wiped out or is cash going to come out of the ATM. It's certainly not that type of crisis, but clearly the collapse of those regional banks, which we're still living with today, has had an impact. And the longer term ramifications of, you know, what we said after the pandemic that the world would be different, we weren't kidding. If you look at the commercial real estate portfolios today, which have a lot of office space, I mean, every morning we walk in and we hear about another investor walking away from mortgages in the office place because people haven't returned to work in many places and offices are 40, 50% full and rents are falling. So, I think that there are some issues in commercial real estate where regional banks have been large lenders and stuff like that. So we're past the point of that mistake. Clearly, that's happened. Clearly, they pivoted. They began to take U.S. treasuries. The Federal Reserve says you can give us those U.S. treasuries and we'll accept them at par versus mark to market. Uh, I, I think a lot of that situation has clearly been addressed. But what we've really passed, which is important for investors, is we've passed peak illiquidity. So we have QT, we have rate hikes. And then we have this period of time where, you know, banks can barely lend anything because of the inversion of the yield curve and also have huge losses in bonds. That illiquidity that the Fed has been driving and tightness in financial conditions, we've passed its peak. Inflation peaked in June at 9%. Illiquidity probably peaked in March. If you're thinking macro-wise, I think those are two very important factors because both those things have been weighing very heavily on equities over the last year. You know, you brought up the regional bank crisis in the U.S. A good example there is you don't own any U.S. or global banks. But, you know, from a macro perspective, how does this shape your view and why and how are you watching it in the context of what does it mean for you as an investor and to your portfolios? Well, you know, we have a discipline and process that we've followed for almost the last 30 years. Not one where it's been theoretical or backtested, but when we've actually been running funds. You know, I started here in 97. I've been running the Power American Fund since 1998. Power Global since 2001. So that's a lot of decades under the belt. I'm not sure how many people have been doing the same thing at the same job. And so, you know, that discipline and process leads us to these growth companies that we find that populate our portfolios. But 2022 was a strange year because nothing in the growth space at all was working because they're all trading together. And so I think what you saw last year was a lot of people pivot, a lot of growth managers just, you know, bragging about dumping everything in the technology space, for example. And just, they own energy, they own financials. And, you know, a lot of the financials that they love have been wiped out. Energy peaked in the Russian invasion of the Ukraine. Fertilizer as well. So, you know, if you're a manager that just, you know, you're managing by, hey, what's on the new high list? Let me buy that. That's not a discipline and process. It's a momentum strategy, which is fine. There are people who can do that. But that's really not what we do. Growth stocks, sure, they can fall 30, 50%, but it takes a value stock like a financial to fall 100 overnight. And so, you know, despite the pressure to, oh, maybe you should buy some banks or maybe you should buy some energy companies, which if you can think of the hit, which mostly occurred in the March to June timeframe of last year, then to have rotated into that stuff, right, for that stuff to fall off the face of the earth over the last little while. I mean, that's just sort of how you end up digging the hole deeper. So, I think the lessons that people learn, which we've learned over our long career, is you have a discipline and a process. It's not going to work every year. But if you stick to it over time, which is the key variable, you'll outperform over longer periods of time. And that's coming from nearly 30 years of doing this. And that, I think, is really important. 
Will there be ramifications? Will there be credit tightness? For sure, there'll be ramifications and credit tightness. Will this be a beneficiary to all the new fintech companies? What's most important is that the big macro pressure on the market and the illiquidity that was driving a lot of these thematic trades is, for now anyway, backed off. So let's pivot that then to things that do end up in your portfolios. You like to look at a group called the big growers. Can you talk a little bit about, first of all, what that group is and why it's important? It's a group of stocks that our friends at Empirical Research in New York put together. It goes back, I believe, to the late 1950s using a database. There's no survivorship bias in that database. And what it looks at is the top 750 stocks within the U.S., but within that, the top 10%, the top 75 names, which are the highest in terms of revenue growth, earnings growth, return on invested capital, and a whole host of other things. And so, you know, a lot of the Barra and Russell indexes, S&P Barra and Russell, really aren't growth versus value. They're expensive versus cheap. You know, I don't think they're very good indicators of what growth stocks are. This is a much better list, and it goes back pretty far. The reason why we like to look at it is because we like to sort of see where growth stocks are as a whole, and it does a good snapshot of that, and certainly over time. You know, last year, we saw the, the big growers within that growth stock cohort hit the highest correlation that we've seen in history, going all the way back to the early 1950s. We saw their relative price to sales ratio versus the overall market hit a low in the spring of last year, June period, where inflation peaked relative to the market that was the lowest in history. And similarly, we've never had a period of time where as a group, the big growers within that stock universe, where so few have outperformed the market. Typically about half are outperforming the market. You may have periods of time like in the late 70s where 40% you know, are outperforming or you may have periods of times where 70 or 80% are outperforming, like in the 90s. But last year around this time, uh, that number hit the lowest in record. I think it got down to 18% of growth stocks had been outperforming the market over the previous 12 months. There's nobody in the history of the market who's ever seen correlations of growth stocks so high, valuations hit such a secular low in the spring of last year, and so few outperforming that we saw last year. And that's why I said I think it's a generational opportunity. Not for all the stocks, certainly, but in terms of what we do, real revenue, real earnings, real opportunity to be significantly larger companies. That was the overall opportunity. No, if we look at the start of 2023 to the end of April, the returns of the market have been narrow. I wanted to just ask you, you know, what's been driving these returns so far this year? And, and how do you see this playing out over the next little while? Yeah, I think to the end of April, the, the big seven names in the index, so Apple, Microsoft, Meta et al., we're up about 47% on a year-to-date basis versus the overall market X, the big seven, which were to the end of April down about three and a half percent. And there are people who say, oh, with narrow breadth, that's a bad sign. It's not necessarily a bad sign. Typically when breadth narrows and there's fewer and fewer stocks outperforming after a long bull market, it's typically a sign that this is coming to an end. Think 2000, think 2007. But actually what usually happens is the market broadens out and more stocks begin to participate. That's been true 60% of the time. But if you actually take away sort of the, the long bull markets that occurred and then when breath started to fall off and you look at where we are now, which is coming out of a bear market, it's about 75% probability that a lot of those companies begin to catch up. So there are people who are mad at this or, or point to it as a sign of uh, further weakness ahead. I think from our perspective, I take it as a positive sign. We're not usually in the mega, mega cap companies. But if you look at some of those companies, whether it's NVIDIA and their next generation GPU chips for AI workloads, whether it's Microsoft with their investment in OpenAI, ChatGPT, 
that at the end of March, I think hit 100 million users. I've been doing this a long time. I've looked at technology for a long time. I've never seen an app go to 100 million users that fast ever in history before. And so just having that AI background, that both AI plus Azure plus Copilot seems to be at a period of time where Microsoft seems to be gaining share from Amazon, for example. In the cloud business, it feels that way anyway. Actually, the earnings for these companies as they've come out haven't been bad. So there are reasons why these companies have gone up. Not all, not necessarily all of them. In the case of Meta, Mark Zuckerberg retook over the company. Uh, he came back to the helm. He laid off a ton of people and really using a lot of machine learning and AI, reinvigorated the advertising business. They took a hit clearly from the economy, but their big hit obviously came from Apple and their privacy changes was a huge hit to Facebook. And so I think, you know, like there are reasons why this happened. It's not happening in a vacuum. But if you believe in AI and you believe in machine learning and you believe all these things are going in the recovery of the ad business, that will broaden out to other players. And I think as people think through things more, this is sort of the first move. And then there's, there's other moves. Some of this also of this big move was positioning. You know, last year, if you talked about technology companies, you know, um, you sort of weren't invited to the party anymore. You had to talk about fertilizer and banks and oil if you wanted to go to a party. And, you know, clients were like, ah, why don't you just own energy stocks? A lot of growth managers did that. They dumped everything and they, that's all they kind of owned. Even though they weren't really growing, they were trying to make the stagflation macro call, which didn't work out. When the banks collapsed in March, all of these investors just started running back into their underweight positions and buying them back. And that really drove some of the biggest names in the index. So I'm not saying whether that's good or bad or anything like that, but I think what's been driving those stocks has started to drive a lot of other stocks. And I think it's, it's got legs. I want to go back, given your history and exposure to tech, you know, in one of your commentaries where you talked about this continued move to cloud with specific investments in artificial intelligence, automation, and machine learning, it's now firmly in the driver's seat of spend. You know, what does AI mean to you as a portfolio manager going forward? And I also want to ask you, it's also got people concerned. And some people are freaked out and scared by it. You know, I think the CEO of IBM last week was talking about how IBM has 26,000 employees in the back office, and they think over the next five years, they'll all be gone. That through both AI and automation, there are repetitive commoditizable tasks that will begin to fade over time, for sure. And you've seen the benefit of AI in things like what Meta has been able to do in advertising, you know, learning better, making better suggestions and other things like that. So I think you need to think of AI and automation a little bit together. McDonald's has a fully automated McDonald's with no person in it. Walmart has talked about 65 to 75% of warehouses being fully automated. There's a degree of artificial intelligence that goes into that and machine learning. When I talked a lot about cloud and, and cloud workloads and other things like that, which have been under some pressure from some of the startups. And you know, the thing about going to the cloud is companies realize they can tune their usage. You know, if I look at our office today, I look at the PCs and the software, if things slow down, we can't tune our usage. We've bought the personal computer or we have the software licenses. What are we going to do? We have to wait a few years until you know, we're up for renewal and stuff like that. But in real time, you can tune your costs, right? So you know, tech went from a capital expenditure to an operating expense and now to a variable expense when we went to subscriptions and now we can tune it in the cloud. But 90% of that on-premise technology spend, which is in the cloud, was sort of our view was going to continue to the cloud. Moving AI to the cloud, though, the, just the data intensity, the size of the workloads, the compute power and the costs. If this was this time last year, I didn't have this in my model for some of the companies we own. I didn't. Like, I think it was coming gradually and it would help build it up. 
But so much has happened so fast. I'm not sure everyone's necessarily caught up to it. We all have ChatGPT. But, you know, there's a company, Chegg, which is an online tutorial company. And that company's stock was cut in half on the day of earnings. You know, you'd have to subscribe and do their online tutorials for different courses and things like that. Stock was cut in half because students are using ChatGPT to answer questions and other things like that, let alone all the other plugins that it is. So there are businesses where it's going to have a real impact. You know, we're moving to a world of 0P and 1P. Apple ended 3P. So 3P was where, let's say we're doing a marketing campaign. A lot of the data we would get would be from Apple phones and location data and other stuff like that. Apple closed a lot of that off. So now you have 0P, which is what do you share with Walmart, for example. And now you have 1P, which is what does Walmart know about your purchasing habits. And a lot of these large corporations, what they're doing is the value in mining that. The value in their existing customers and upselling those customers, understanding those customers better. The enhancements through AI was theoretical and gradual, but the game's changed and changed very, very quickly. And if people aren't on top of it, then I think, uh, I think it's going to be a problem longer term. This whole subject of AI, it hasn't happened overnight either. I mean, I was reading an article talked about, you know, the concept of a chatbot goes back to the 60s. There are many companies with AI chatbots today, but I think OpenAI and ChatGPT and the large language networks and the cloud and stuff like that are kind of changing the game a little bit on these chatbots. They might be commoditizing some of them. You could probably set one up fairly quickly. And the ability to get the data, right? Not just like you pre-program it with like, oh, my cable box doesn't work. Oh, right, like yeah. you just reboot it, right? Like, like <laughs> there are standard questions that they teach these things. But now if it can learn in real time, so if you have a cloud-based chatbot for your cable company that's learning in real time through data streaming, that's updating the large language model in real time, it can immediately realize that there's an outage in your area, right? Without going through 300 things and pressing zero and eventually getting it. So the speed and the customer service of that are very different. You know, it's like comparing uh, Ask Jeeves to Google. Where the technology is, it's, it's much different. It just, it's happened very, very quickly. And Microsoft's investment has been uh, very, very smart. So would it be fair to say, though, as an investor, you're really interested in what you're looking at is what's going to be the new technology architecture and who's that next generation of company that's adopting? Is that what you're searching for, looking at? At the end of the day, we're looking for companies generating high revenue growth, high earnings growth, high teens are better. The ones who are hurt will be in their numbers. The ones who are benefit will be in their numbers. Like the market will shake that out. The results will show that. You don't have to sort of, you know, go to the top of a mountain and take heavy doses of peyote or something and have the symbols come to you in your head or anything like that. You don't have to have an ivory tower, top down type of approach. You could just actually look at the fundamentals. But I think what it's reinforced for me is I don't really want to be involved in seat based software, for example. Like I think we're just going to need less employees going forward. Whereas I think consumption-based, cloud-based, consumption-based, where you're paying by usage and by data, it's a much more attractive business model over the next 10 to 15 to 20 years versus seats, for example, in terms of how many people you need, how many people are using the software and how many licenses you buy. So I think on the fringes, it's changing things longer term, but we're starting to see that in the results. A lot happened from November of 2022 to March of 2023. From November of 21, to March of 22, we had the Federal Reserve go completely bonkers and then throughout 2022. From November of 22 to March of 23, we've really had this explosion of AI, which I think is hyped in the short term, but it's significantly underestimated in the long term because there's a lot of stocks that would be two to three times higher than where they're trading today 
if people figured out what this meant over the longer term. You've talked um, through your recent commentaries as well and, and, and other conversations like this. You've been talking about other areas outside of just AI in the cloud too for you know new emerging leadership or opportunities within your process, consumer, healthcare. I think that the larger theme of cloud and AI is certainly driving tech spend and where things are going and making us smarter people. I think when you come to healthcare or you come to the consumer, it's much more idiosyncratic or stock specific. You can't make a case, for example, of the whole space you can look and you can see that in healthcare, you know, we've had investments and still have investments in two of the largest unmet needs from a pharmaceutical standpoint today are in obesity and in Alzheimer's today. And we're on the cusp of those drugs being launched. Obviously, uh, Ozempic is on the market today uh, from Novo Nordisk and Lilly's approval for their weight loss drug is approved in the United States, not necessarily global, Omerjerno. Uh, so, you know, you have these drugs that are coming in to deal with obesity, which is significant market around the world. And then you have these new drugs for dementia for Alzheimer's as well, in terms of uh, both Biogenidec and Eli Lilly. Eli Lilly is the name we own. And so from our perspective, you know, that's the only sort of a little bit thematic thing that we would talk about in healthcare. Otherwise, it's certain medical devices uh, in certain areas of cardiology or in other places like that, or constant glucose monitors and other things like that. I would say, though, that in the consumer space, certainly we like the brands that have survived and thrived, that have a combination of both online and physical stores for the experiential part. But I think back to the restaurant business for a second, and I think, obviously, there's a lot of people and healthcare workers that went through difficult times. But just thinking of it aside from that, it must have been impossible to run a restaurant over the last three years. And so if you think about it, you had this complete shutdown of the restaurant business, and then you had this pivot toward digital where you had to get on Uber Eats, get on DoorDash, get on get on everything platform to try and survive in your business and, and everything that came with that. And then you had to reopen and you had to close and you had to reopen. Oh, and by the way, during that period of time, you know, there was, I don't know if you remember the pictures at the beginning of the pandemic, we were all sitting at home in our onesies watching TV and ordering food. But there was a scene, if people remember, of people dumping milk. There were two supply chains. There was a restaurant supply chain. There was a grocery supply chain. Many of the restaurant companies had to pivot to the grocery supply chain because basically the restaurant supply chain collapsed during the pandemic. It just, it just went gone. So you have no supply chain. You have no customers. I think that you know, what we've seen emerge here of the restaurant companies that have survived the pandemic, that have this digital footprint is like you can make the case that there's a little bit less competition and the resiliency of these businesses is significantly higher than before. These are just much better management teams. The experience that they have just gone through over the last three years of struggling with high food costs, high labor costs, shutting the restaurants down, it's been literally impossible. So, you know, there's been a few in that space that have done well for us who also have the ability to open significantly more restaurants and I think are just going to be viewed differently on a go-forward basis because I think the management experience and quality and resiliency is just much, much better than it was before. Do you pay attention to labor numbers? You know, for example, you talked about supply chain. I mean, human supply chain was a big problem for restaurants, as you mentioned, coming out of the pandemic. Is that a metric you look at? For sure. I think and what we're hearing you know, more recently is that um, labor availability is okay. Wage prices and stuff are where they are, but food prices have come down, and in some cases come down a lot. So some of those inflationary pressures are certainly beginning to ease for these restaurant companies who have dealt with a lot. I think, you know, listen, there are going to be fallouts from AI, for sure. You know, the Fed has raised interest rates in the short term because they're worried about 
what I think is debunked, but keeps coming up, which is you know the wage price spiral of low unemployment and wages going higher. But the longer term trend on the labor force really becomes you know what's the impact of AI and artificial intelligence. Goldman's had some numbers like 25% of U.S. jobs could be at risk, which I think is a way too high of a number to talk about. But there's going to be an impact for sure. And so I think the tightness of the labor market is in the rearview mirror along with the illiquidity. Another question for you is specific to where you invest sector and company-wise, um, your comments on M&A activity. More robust going forward or is it really dependent on the sector? You know, it depends. I think um, probably not. This administration has uh, really put a, a damper on a lot of acquisitions from large public companies uh, buying smaller, smaller rivals. However, what I would say, though, is that one of the things for a lot of the growth stocks that is better now than before is that for years they were competing against venture-funded private companies that had just unlimited amounts of money. And so they were trying to get some multiple of sales for their IPO. Didn't matter if they were profitable or not, they could have gone public. And they would just be blank check funded by venture capitalists and private equity to the moon. That game is over. A lot of those companies which have kind of been making huge losses and things like that now have to show profitability. And so for the public companies which are trading, in some cases at a quarter of the valuation of where private equity still has some of these companies valued, there's just much less price competition on a whole bunch of areas. But there are public companies because they're so cheap, which are being bought and being bought by private equity. And so a lot of those private equity, what we're seeing is corporate buyers of a lot of companies. I mean, there was a period of time there where every day, like almost every day, another software company was being taken private. And so I think that goes more to the fact of just how cheap public markets are, especially for long-lived assets like software and other things like that. And so we continue to see, uh, even this morning, I saw another large software acquisition through private equity. So, you know, when you look at the profitability of a lot of these public companies, some of these investment portfolios with unprofitable companies, there's a case to be made for slapping some things together before trying to take them public. But the compelling valuations in the public market, I think, is more testament to that. In terms of larger companies buying smaller companies for competitive reasons, you know, I'm, I hate that. Like, I get angry when that happens because you have some of these mid-cap $5 billion revenue companies who get bought by this huge conglomerate. Uh, no, you know, I thought that was going from $5 billion to 25 right, or yeah. 50 billion. And now it's going to do that within company XYZ. And I don't get to benefit from that as much. So for me, I actually appreciate that a little bit more. And then all these other companies being taken out by private equity, I think is a positive as well and a, a signal about how cheap some places in the public market have been. Let's do final thoughts. Um, you know, and in the context of building diversified portfolios and the place for growth in those portfolios, what can you leave our listeners with? It's hard to find an example what I would describe 2022 as. But there's a scene in the movie Caddyshack where there's a fouling of the swimming pool and everybody jumps out of the swimming pool only for Bill Murray's character to discover it's just a chocolate bar. <laughs> and I kind of feel like 2022 was this huge macro trade that everyone jumped out of the pool on secular growth names because of, oh, I don't know, well, the discount rate's going up, so they're worthless. Or, uh, you know, when rates are going up, you don't want to own growth stocks, you want to Whatever the macro narrative was, we saw an all-time historic valuation low in the spring of last year. We saw correlations that we've never seen before. And so for me, I think that that whole thing in 2022 was very different from 2000 to 2002. It was very different to 2008, where there was real pressure on companies, where earnings were collapsing, the business was collapsing. Was there hesitation in deals closing? Sure. Was there 
corporate CEOs going, I don't know what's going on. I'm not sure what we should do. A hundred percent. There was that. But from a corporate perspective, I think for a lot of our secular growth names, they've showed amazing resiliency through that period of time. And a lot of the big caps now, uh, the mega caps that people have flocked into, have also shown some pretty good earnings that we moved into 2023. When we moved into our new offices, I found a DVD uh, of my first appearance on CNBC, which was on Kudlow and Kramer in 2003. And I was talking about internet stocks at the time. And just, you know, I believe eBay had tripled during 2003. Their business was on fire. In fact, it was on fire for throughout most of that 01, uh, 02 period of time. But if you talked about internet stocks to people in 2003, 2004, you know, you would have been shown out the door and you could eat next to the dumpster for dinner if you'd like. But the reality was Google came public a year later. And so those companies didn't come back, but the trends that we're talking about really in staying close to that situation benefited Google. This for me is analogous to kind of that, not the financial crisis, in that there are so many companies that are so well positioned with consumption-based data models, with analytics, with everything that you're going to need for this next generation of a technology stack for that 90% to move off-prem to the cloud, for AI and ML workloads to come on, that we look at it and we say to ourselves, and certainly in that space, it's very much a situation where people have left the pool. They believe that there's a problem with the pool. Sometimes people let price dictate their emotions. Well, it's down, so there must be something wrong with the company. It's down, that should be an opportunity if there's nothing wrong with the company. And so we kind of feel like for a number of our companies, that's the situation. And that's what makes us so excited. We just really want to be there for the next five years. No, it's always insightful and a great conversation. I appreciate your insights and uh, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. And to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. You've been listening to another edition of On The Money with Dynamic Funds. For more information on Dynamic and our complete lineup of actively managed funds, contact your financial advisor or visit our website at dynamic.ca. Thanks for joining us. This audio has been prepared by 1832 Asset Management LP and is provided for information purposes only. Views expressed regarding a particular investment, economy, industry, or market sector should not be considered an indication of trading intent of any of the mutual funds managed by 1832 Asset Management LP. These views are not to be relied upon as investment advice, nor should they be considered a recommendation to buy or sell. These views are subject to change at any time based upon markets and other conditions, and we disclaim any responsibility to update such views. To the extent this audio contains information or data obtained from third-party sources, it is believed to be accurate and reliable as of the date of publication. But 1832 Asset Management LP does not guarantee its accuracy or reliability. Nothing in this document is or should be relied upon as a promise or representation as to the future. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of return are the historical annual compound total returns, including changes in unit values. And reinvestment of all distributions does not take into account sales, redemption, or option changes, or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns. Mutual funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated.